Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future. This episode of the podcast is supported by Bitwax, the online vinyl store that accepts cryptocurrencies as payments alongside standard card payments. I used to own a record shop many years ago and still have a solid vinyl collection in my studio today. There's nothing better than receiving your favourite new tracks through the post, peeling off the plastic and actually touching the music. Go to www.bitwax.co.uk and treat yourself today. You can find more episodes of this podcast on iTunes, Spotify and on Mixcloud. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house. In this episode, I talk to Fat Phil Cooper in his lovely Ibethan apartment about his journey from North Wales signwriter to Bali with Grease Jones via Cream Residencies and Ministry of Sound non-residencies and a whole lot more. Phil is a DJ, label boss, music selector and music collector. We only barely scrape the tip of the iceberg of his career in the industry in our conversation. But what we do talk about is what most people could only dream of when setting out with a bag of records and a dream. Let's get into it. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are. Okay, here we are in Ibiza, in Fat Phil Cooper's lovely apartment. I can I don't know if I can quite see the dot villa. Is that like a little yeah. bit of a wall? If you come here, All right, for yeah, yeah, Phil yeah. can see it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, ju- I'm just over and we're going to have a quick chat. We're going to start in the same place as, as usual, which is, what is your first real recollection of hearing music? Where was it being played? Who was playing it? Was it in the car? Was it like a parent or a brother or a sister or a friend? Like... I don't need the first, you know, but like just is it going all the way back to childhood? Where do you first remember hearing music? I guess it was my parents, really. I mean, they weren't strict music lovers. Dad was into Slim Whitman, Johnny Cash, that kind of country sound. And my mum, I guess, was Scylla Black. Um, I wouldn't say the Beatles, but... Yeah, a bit of the scouts coming. Yeah, through. well, my mum's from North Wales. Okay. My dad was Scottish. Okay. I grew up in North Wales, but we, you know, Liverpool, you know, lots of scousers came over and there is that. In fact, my granddad was a scouser. So I guess that's where it came from, really. The, the folks, but they weren't music lovers and it was never like... Yeah, they just never... It, it, wasn't, it wasn't like we were a family of music lovers, basically. Okay. It was just background noise, really. And then sort of progressing from that, when do you remember first your sort of first ownership of music? Like in the sense of did someone get you a record player, a tape deck? Do you remember again? I'm not asking like the first thing you bought, but like oh, I know that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we can go to it. But yeah, ownership wise, like can you remember the first point when you started to like take a little bit of control? Yeah. So it wasn't just background noise; it was something that you were. I guess it was, I mean, I saw Star Wars, so I was born in 71, Star Wars was 77, 78 or something like that. So one of the first albums or bits of music I bought was the John Williams classic Star Wars symphony. So the, on the, the big open one with the album. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and because um, my dad ha- did have a turntable and he had some bits of vinyl, again, not much. But yeah, there was a turntable um, and that was it, you know, and, and I just quickly fell in love with the... The whole medium of it, really, you know, the vinyl thing with 
the smell, the look, the feel, the notes, the sleeve notes, obviously on the, on the albums and things, that's what you got. You didn't get those on the single, but yeah. So do you remember buying that style? Yeah, I remember. Go- it to you, or- you know, I remember going with my dad around, I think it would have been a WH Smith's or a Woolworth's. Yeah. And I also think, I might, and I need to check on the dates, but I also remember Adam Ant, Ant Music being a single I bought quite quick, quite early on. Uh, Joe Dolce, Shut Up Your Face. I don't know if you remember that record. That was like a cheesy Italian yeah. um, piss take record, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just loved, I think it was the, as well as the listening, it's just the feel, the texture, yeah. the, yeah. yeah it's the funny that you, it's funny that you um, sort of, it's funny that you remember it being a, an influence from a film because Alone Mind isn't as cool. The first bit of vinyl I bought, which is probably the first bit of music I ever bought with my own money, was like a seven inch um, Kenny Logan's Danger Zone. Oh, from the. Uh, double A side from Top Gun. It was yeah, take, yeah. take My Breath Away, which I wasn't interested in Take My Breath Away. Yeah. I wanted like, I yeah. wanted uh, Danger Zone on the B side. Yeah. I've still got the little seven inch, like, yeah, with, yeah, yeah. Uh, with um, Tom Cruise in the front. It <laughs> just made me think. So yeah, and then the next question we always go to really is, when's the first time, and it seems a silly question in a way, but when's the first time that you realised that someone's job was to be a DJ, whether it was to be selecting music, playing music, performing, it could be radio, it could be that you were at a gig, it could be a friend, but when was the first time that you just realised, because you're not born with this knowledge, No. when was the first time that you realised that someone did that? I guess I would have been... I mean, I used to go to, you know, when I was a kid, we'd go to disco. So when obviously the things like the Beastie Boys hit and, and and obviously there was bands like the Smiths and stuff, I was living in North Wales and going to the youth disco, as it were. Um, and I also had a friend who'd come from Australia, whose brother is a very prolific street artist. And he teamed up with another guy who lived at the end of my road called Jason McPhee, who system who did all the unique three artwork actually the theme which and those guys kind of influenced because they were a lot older than us they were like we were in our second or third year in school and they would have been in their fifth and sixth years and they were obviously traveling and bringing music back and and I think I saw videos of you know block parties in New York and yeah things like that and obviously I lived in North Wales then so we had a big fun pub scene okay so real for example um, I mean, although I was too young to go to that, I knew what a DJ was and I knew there was the radio DJs and I knew there was the kind of fun pub DJs, but I also knew that there was these cooler DJs. Um, there was a Northern Soul scene in North Wales as well. Right. And, um, you know, I was kind of aware of friends, older siblings who would be going out to some of those dances and stuff. And I just liked the idea that, you know, you could... Because I, I dabbled with music, but was never any good. I just didn't have the patience. Do you mean like make it? Well, yeah, yeah but piano as a kid. Okay, and, yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, I, th- I think it was just an amalgamation of all these things that, you know, you could control the dance or, you know, I love making mixtapes and I loved, I've always loved the shared experience of music. Yeah. I love, you know, the fact that I can sit down in a room with one-on-one with you, for example, and play music you've never heard before. Yeah. Equally, I can be stood in front of 10,000 people in a yeah. warehouse doing the same thing. Yeah. I love I love that shared experience. I love it when everybody gets it. Um, so it's a wicked point. Like, it's something that I, I notice in myself, again, is that thing of, sometimes I often don't listen to music enough on my own. Yeah. Like, I do it in a work capacity, like for research. Or yeah. for, but 
what you just highlighted, I think, is so true. Is nothing makes me happier than standing in a corner playing music and seeing that kind of group emotion or that group reaction. Yeah. And I think it's something that must it must run through the DNA of I think so, DJs, yeah. especially the especially the the older generation is the wrong word, but people who came from I guess you know you were a bit earlier than me, but that place of like and it was interesting you also said about about the, about the instruments thing. And I don't know if it's a ridiculously broad statement to make that potentially a lot of DJs from our generation were pot- potentially frustrated musicians who yeah, couldn't I play an so. instrument yeah. who started to use DJing as a way of doing it. Whereas now it's obviously a lot of musicians become DJs because yes. of the production. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's really that, that shared experience, I think, is, is, yeah. is huge. I mean, there's a there's been an on-running, you know, every so often you'll see Harvey will pop up and and he's always made that statement that, you know, his responsibility is for the dancers. That's it. Yeah. He doesn't have to share that piece of music with you. And he's been quite adamant over the years. He's very reluctant to let mixes go out. And, and that, you know, that is his belief. And that, you know, and I, I say there's no right or wrong. You know, he, he is like that and has become this kind of, you know, people will travel far and wide because to see you because of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and that's not just him. He comes from an older generation of DJs where... You know, they were your tools and your weapons and, you know, you had to keep things secret. Like yeah. the old white label in, of stuff in the northern scene, you know, yeah. you'd, you'd travel to America and you'd found this amazing piece. You weren't going to give that information. To no. Yeah. Whereas I was always... And he and again, there's there's not just Harvey, there's a whole bunch of DJs. And, and they're not saying they won't give that information up. They just make it, you know, you have to engage with them. Whereas yeah. now, I, I mean, I'll DJ and people will be stood next to me, more so when I was in Bali, shazamming. And you're like... Talk to me, I'm here, yeah. you know, ask me. Or they would just lean over and try and take a picture. And you're like, no, come on, where's the politeness gone? Yeah. It, it, music is a shared thing. Yeah. You know, it brings people together. And it can be, most of my long-term relationships, friendships have come from music and the love of it. Yeah. And I think if you suddenly cut that out and it becomes, you know, like DJing off MP3, for example, is quite a, quite a solitary Thing. Whereas when you're playing with vinyl, the first thing you do when you turn up to the DJ booth when somebody else is playing vinyl, you, you jump boxes. You, yeah. You'll say, can I have a look at yours and vice versa, you know. And I think we need to try and encourage that behaviour in all aspects of club culture, really, where if you want to know about the music, go and ask. You know, yeah. don't be afraid. Um, if the DJ is going to be an arsehole and not tell you, well, that's just an arsehole's response, you know. But yeah. most people are just happy you've come and asked because... The feedback's gone in a lot of situations now. You don't, it's you, the record, I mean, it comes up on this podcast a lot. And it's, and I've, you know, I've been involved and have been involved in, in this side of it, but in different ways over the years. But just the missing of like the record shop thing. Yes. It, and I used to own a record shop, but oh, way before yeah. that, I used to, I used to go to them. I used to, I used to travel, like you were saying. I mean, I went to, you know, I used to you know, drive to Liverpool. I used to drive, to, you know, to London. I used to go to places. Or if you were away somewhere, like you were blind. Yeah, if I was, because I went, I remember going on a, um, I'll keep this brief because I must have said it on the podcast before I remember going to New York on an art school trip and like going to find dance tracks and yeah. it ended up being in the most dodgy neighbourhood which we were all warned specifically not to go to you know and I just went there a little white 19 and I walked in and went I like Soulful House yeah. <laughs> this guy was like I'll sort you out yeah. and I ended up having to pay a big fee when flying home because I had to the wait and everything yeah, yeah. but yeah what I miss is that it's totally it's, it's changed and I do I try personally on this podcast not to be one of those guys who's like it's rubbish now it's not everything changes and you find the positive 
But I do miss that thing on a Saturday of going into like, you know, I live in Newcastle, going into flying or whatever. Yeah. And you'd speak to Scott or Lee and, you know, you'd mm. basically, and you'd get, but you would find out so much more than just a new record. It wasn't just about the yeah. music. It was a social, it was our scene. DJs, yeah. nights, people passing through. Yeah. You know, the amount of times I'd bump into, you know, a DJ who was playing Shindig that night, like yeah. Jose Nunes would be in the store yeah. before playing. And then you'd find out some information and... So yeah, I think it's, it, although it's, we've come to it from a roundabout point of view, even just talking to the DJ thing is important. I don't know if people feel that you're unapproachable, like not you personally, I don't know no. if people think that if you were playing at, if you were playing at Elitoria or whatever, I don't know if people would think that you may respond, again, I'm not saying you won, you know, may respond in a, in a bad way, I don't know. I think the superstar DJ thing certainly made that, you know, because years and years ago, before that all happened, DJs were just the blokes in the corner, and and it's kind of they gone back. Always to... facing the crowd, the crowd yes, couldn't yeah, always yeah. see the yeah, DJ, yeah. like in the way that we put them on a pedestal. Them now, and yeah. I think that's that's why there's this issue now. I mean, I I, I love it when people come over, especially at La Torre has a great, you know, crowd. I mean, I've been living in Asia five years, and it's it, it, that kind of, you know. It's very rare you'd have somebody who was genuinely passionate about the music would come and engage with you. I, mean, I guess because of the language and cultural issues. But yeah. being back here, everybody, without doubt, even through the winter when it's quiet, I mean, like I'm playing there, t- you know, tonight and it'll be, it won't be rammed, but you'll always get at least one person will come and thank you for the music or ask about the music, you know, yeah. and, and want to know a bit more. And um, But that's just, yeah, the nature of it. It's become so disposable now. Years ago, you know, you you struggle to get mixes. You know, if you you went to a club, yes, if it was a big club, they might have recorded it, they might do the tape, but that was it. The set was gone. It was gone into... Yeah, (laughs) well, yeah. And it was gone into the the ether, you know. You just remembered what you remembered. But now content is so... I mean, I'm a, you know, prime culprit. I pretty much record everything and I put everything up and I don't generally filter it you know if there's a loose mix in there there's a loose mix because that represents me and that could I guess be beneficial in some respects but also have a negative effect because a promoter might hear and go well he can't mix I'm not going to book him but but you know for me again it's that shared thing I'm like I've loved technology I've always been you know I've jumped on it from an early age you know um before you well Ustream was a platform that came around many years ago and you could you could stream live from your computer I was doing yeah. that pre-boiler room and anything like that I'd yeah. do my little sessions and I love the way that I can reach out globally now and, and speak to people all around the world so I was going to ask you about this before it was a point you made um, and I'm interested in it and I'm interested in it because maybe it's in the places that you DJ and the type of music but I was going to when you started talked about the Harvey thing and you brought up the sharing of the sets and stuff what interested, interests me and has become more apparent is the difference between like a live recording in a club and what I might want to represent to people as what I am playing yeah. in a club. So, you know, I might want to make a mix on Ableton yes. to appear that that's what I am playing. Yeah. But it's not potentially quite what I'm playing and it's certainly not potentially how I'm playing it. Now, this is, I think, different for you because of the type of music you play and the venues you play in. But if I was, you know, when I, I would be playing um, a guest or, or a residency, I would be playing, I would do a lot more tricks. I would do a lot more because I could hear the crowd as well. And there yeah. would be a lot more. Yeah, you feed off the interaction yeah, with yeah. stuff. I might even be filtering things for builds. But then if you listen to that in a car, potentially without FX mics, suddenly it starts to sound, in my opinion, sometimes a bit, yeah. a bit poor. Yeah. So then that's when I started to go, well, maybe I should re, because sometimes I've recreated a set that I've played 
But in Ableton, like recently, I, I warmed up for Purple Disco Machine, and it was like I didn't record it, but I had my my track history. This, yes. So I basically like the next couple of days, I went, oh, like, I'll go into Ableton and I recreate it, and it sounds really solid. But when I listen to it, I go, but that's what it wouldn't it wouldn't have sounded like that no. in the club. Yeah. So I just wanted your because I have listened to your mixes and I've mentioned this before. I just want interested in your opinion on that about like the representing live versus and other people that you've heard doing this. Or, yeah. I mean, it is a difficult one. You know. I mean, you often hear of DJs, you know, quite big names who get really excited that they're about to put out a DJ mix because they don't record and they don't allow stuff to go out. Yeah. Whereas, you know, personally, again, for me, I was always putting mixes out. And, and you know, the reason I got my cream residency was, you know, I was already DJing in the Northwest up in Chester. Me and Russ from K-Class had a night called Sweet. Uh, which we'll was, come back to all this, by the okay, way, don't yeah. we? <laughs> but don't you, don't, you can carry on, but yeah, we'll come back, back to, to that. We've just got off on it. And, and I was always doing mixes... And then I, you know, when I wasn't DJing, I was off up to Cream or, you know, um, kind of the tail end of the Hacienda and other clubs. And I would always take a tape to give to the promoter, you know, yeah. because those days you didn't have the EPKs and the yeah. digital drop boxes yeah. and, and that ease, you know. And I, and, and I remember getting my first Cream gig and I remember going around all the record shops in Liverpool, grabbing as many flyers with my name on, yeah. you know, taking them home, filling envelopes, putting cassettes in and going to the post office and posting stuff all around the world. My, my big point about this, and I'm sure everyone feels the same, is that the mixtape now has lost, whether on what format it's on, doesn't matter. Yeah. But the DJ mixtape, as in to get you a gig, I feel has lost all credibility because... I know that when I started making mixtapes, I was making them two turntables, two tables, a mixer in my house. So there was no way to cheat without expensive studio equipment. Yeah. There was no way to cheat the fact that I could work, play. Yeah. And as, even as good as anyone's could have been, I defy anyone to not know that it was going to play it on vinyl because you could always hear a tiny slip on the yes. mix. You could always hear, I don't mean going massively out, but any DJ could always hear yeah. a tiny correction, a tiny little bit yeah. because there wasn't master pitch control and anything. Whereas now, DJ sends me a mix. I mean, unless unless I can really hear that it's live, you know probably it's been made on Ableton. Yeah. I'm not giving anyone a gig now from a mix that they send me, unless they say, this was recorded live at, yeah. and I listen to it and I can hear the yeah, yeah, bit yeah. of crowd noise or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think that's that has totally changed that getting gigs off mixtapes. But let's come back to the, the structure of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the podcast, which would be the next question would then be of being aware of DJs is... At what point did you then think, I want to be a DJ? Like, at what yeah. point have you been, you know, so you, you talked about being aware of the, the parties, uh, potentially you've seen videos, you're potentially aware of the fun pub scene. Was there a point that you can remember going, I want to do that? Yeah. And how did you go about it? I um, I went, got the yellow pages, and I looked at all the fun pubs and DJs okay. in the in the area, and I wrote them letters. Amazing. And um, I, I can never remember the guy's name, but a guy picked, said, "Yeah, come c- come to Rill," and it was a it was a proper fun pub. And I was only about fourteen or fifteen, and my parents had to run me there. Um, and I remember, you know, just he said, "Right, you're just going to watch." And then after a few weeks, he's like, "Look, I can't do next week. I want you to take over." And suddenly, I'm so, with a mic insulting some of the ugliest people and biggest people in the pub, and I'm like, "This isn't really what I expected it to be," but he also used to do these uh, underage discos and I would be his like cassette boy or what they call them, crate boy. And I would help him load in, pack everything up. And then he would give me um, 
you know, half an hour and I would take a few of my records and, you know, this guy wasn't much older than me. He'd have been early 20s, if that. Yeah. So he was probably, you know, outside smoking fags with some of the older looking girls, you know what I mean? And that was his little break and... Well, so it's quite cunning. I mean, he was kind of helping you. Yeah, I mean, he was he just... Wasn't, like, he wasn't exploiting no, you, really. No, no, you know... And so it's quite cunning, really. Yeah. And then we had a, night, uh, a, a ritzy club, for want of a better word, called the Broadway Boulevard opened in Clandidno. Um, and they were, you know, there was adverts in the paper, we want, you know, and I went for the interviews and I wanted a barman's job or something and they, I didn't get it. I got a, I got a glass collector's job, you know, and uh, yeah, yeah, we've all started there. <laughs> and I got to know the, the, the management really well and the, the DJ Pat, who was from Oldham, one of the, one of the best, funniest... Mike men ever couldn't mix to save toffee so I would give him some basic lessons he would have again a break or he would, when I had my break he'd let me jump on and I would do a dance half hour that eventually turned into me working with the club and running a Wednesday night yeah. you know back way way so, back then so did you interject there, Sorry? just because you said you were playing did you have equipment at home at this point? I had Cytronics Professionals, right. yeah. So you had the belt drives. The belt drives, yeah. yeah. I had the belt drives. I had... A little mixer, like a little two-track A little Cytronic with the echo effect. And then... Um, but my sound system was um, a, a second-hand PA unit, which drove my dad wild. And, <laughs> and it was... I swapped it for a multi-gym. I, I bought a multi-gym years ago on the catalogue. Do you know what I mean? 300 quid. £10 a month or something. Like I need a multi-gym. I'm like, I've never worked out fucking anywhere but where the door is of the gym and leave. Um, so I, I swapped it with a lad because I was a sign writer. I was doing a bit of sign writing as well. That's the only job I've ever had out of school. And one of the lads who worked with me used to be in bands and he had these big speakers and they were proper, huge. And I remember sanding them down, painting them matte black, putting all my old flyers on, varnishing them. These looked amazing, but the amp was this huge beast. And when you'd switch it on, it was like the lights... Mm. Yeah, the lights would... <laughs> and then it just would go on and the... And my poor dad, as I say, he had aggravated hearing issues anyway, and that didn't bloody help. Um, so, yeah, so I had equipment, and I, it was built into, like, this built-in... So I had, like, decks and a mixer and a, a rack of records. And Did you ever do the thing where you took your, your equipment? Like, yes. Yeah, you know? So I had mates who went to uni in Manchester. Okay. I didn't go to uni. I did much, much later as a mature student. But, yeah. And then they were like, oh, you know, we'd, we're going to do a house party. Cool. You know, they lived in halls of residence. Right. They lived in... Um, can't remember. It's the same halls of residence the Chemicals lived in when they were there and James Holroyd and all that crew. But we they were a few years older than all my crew. So a mate of mine, Ernie, had a Fiesta and he collected records and I had the PA. And the, so we loaded it all in and drove up. We did this amazing halls of residence party that went on for the full weekend. And Wicked. We did a few of those and then one bright spark amongst our group was like a bit of an entrepreneur. I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to hire a, a room above a pub in Fallowfield. And, and then we started doing, you know, those. And was this at the same sort of time as the Ritzy that you were talking about? Yeah, it was all kind of... Do you know what? It's, like, you're sort of like 19 at this time, 19, 20? Like you've I, got a I've left school, yeah. I mean, I've been dabbling around with Dex since I was about 15, okay. 16. And then mates had gone through sixth form into college. So it would have been... I'm just terrible. I mean, I'm 49 now. So I know, you know, I know I'm asking you to dig back. I, it is yeah. Can you remember the first time? Because this comes up a lot on, on my mind. Like, can you remember the first time that you played records, like you know, DJed two people that you sort of didn't know? Like, because obviously there's that thing when you're in your room. You might even have that thing when you're in mates. 
was the first time was that fun pub the first time that you were like sort of mixing playing records to people that you yeah. didn't know like a real gig that was yeah I mean it would have been that those fun pub days when I was a bit younger yeah. and the mixing wouldn't have been brilliant but it was you know and then as I say when I was working in that nightclub um, and started to do a Wednesday what was you it know, called? it was called the Broadway Boulevard no no the Wednesday night oh it was called Dig D-I-G nice. and basically there was a there was a lad from my village, Turbo, who was a big LFC fan, a lot older, used to go at the match, and he knew all the lads up the North Wales coast because they were all older, you know, and they were big football fans. They'd been going to clubs a lot longer than I had. Yeah. Um, and he'd said, oh, there's a lad in Flint called Steve who, you know, is a DJ. And Steve was a couple of years old than me. Now, Steve and I became, we are best of pals. We've run labels together. But he was the first time I saw someone using pitch control properly, you know. Oh, yeah. And he had an older sister, Debbie, who's like a sister to me now. And she was kind of his big musical influence. So it was weird because, you know, things travel. There's these lads down this part of the coast who are trying to do what you guys are doing. So we all, we all met up and we yeah. started doing this these parties together. And the first dig we did... The manager was like, look, you can rent the venue. If you get 300 people in, you don't pay anything to yeah. us. If you get less than 300 in, for every person less, you owe us a quid. Yeah. So if you had 50 in, you owe us 250 quid. Yeah. So we did 500 people at yeah. about a fiver. You know, it's, amazing, it's amazing this when you get the insight into like the club industry for the first time. Because obviously we're used to it for decades now. Yeah. But that first time someone explains to you like those sort of things, you're like... Yeah, yeah, I understand that. Yeah. <laughs> and we made money, you know. And at the time, I was probably still sign writing. I was on 40 quid a week or something, if that... And we made more money on that Wednesday night. Yeah. And and then other things happened around the North Wales coast. We got involved with parties up in Rill. Because um, Rill was quite a destination, a, a holiday destination. Yeah, it was, it was big. More so than it is now. It's kind of going through a bit of a resurgence. Okay. Because what happened is they built this A55 motorway, which... So originally, you'd have to travel through the North Wales coast to get to Holyhead, you know. Yeah. And there was, you'd stop at all these amazing places, all these Victorian seaside towns. But then they built the A55, which cut through everything. So nobody would stop. So real became mad, big problems with heroin, you know. It, yeah. you know, it became a kind of a dropout place for people from all around the country. And it really fell on its arse. And it's kind of coming back now. The okay. council are spending money. But but we, um, yeah, we would be doing parties there. And, you know, we ended up getting Saturday nights. We did a boxing day all day. And it was the Prodigy Live, K-Class, Carl Cox, DJ. Was it like a dig thing you were doing? This right? then was a thing called, no, it was something else. then Because we all then started multiple parties with different yeah. groups. And, I mean, there was... There was parties happening all the time, you were know. Were you playing in Liverpool yet at this point? Or you, no, no, I was I was still just pottering around it's the North Wales coast. There was enough going on in that North Real coast. Well, like, we were talking earlier about the American football thing that you yeah. have. When I used to play American football, every small town had a team. Wow. I mean, literally in North Wales, Cowan Bay Bears, Carnarvon Knights, Buckley Hangmen. All these, and these are like tiny little villages, all yeah. our teams. And it's it was the amazing. same with the Acid House, the club culture, you know. Yeah. Everybody realised that they could have an amazing party. And it was interesting, I was, I was going to, I don't want to I don't want to dig into this, I certainly don't want names, but it's interesting, and I know a few people, um, as you will do, because when you mentioned the match and stuff, there did become that link between like the sort of the casuals yes. and the club culture. Yeah. I don't want to go into the hooligan thing, but like yeah. there is definitely, you know, there was with my team and Carl and, and, and yeah. that changed, you know, even with Ricky up in Glasgow and the casuals yes, and that colours, stuff. Yeah, yeah, all the Ricky's crew. So there's, and again, I'm not, I'm not linking violence or anything. I just mean, even when well, you no, mentioned the match, there did become that crossover that, between that was, that was Orlando and the match. Well, that was it. There was, you know, when you were a lad growing up, there wasn't much besides football, right? Yeah. 
Most of the lads who went to football, yes, there was always that element who were still probably running around. There was an kick, edge, yeah. yeah. But the, most of the guys were yeah. just, it was just a good time. And, and there was a lot, you know, and out of that culture, you pointed out Ricky McGowan and that crew. I mean, that, Ricky's an old, old friend. And all that crew, and, it, you know, they book me and it would be a weekend of football and clubbing, yeah. you know. And, and yes, and it was. And then, especially what we were doing, because they, all the lads I were running with were, would have been Liverpool fans and there was a, suddenly there's all these lads coming down from Manchester and previous weekend they would have been on the terrace kicking shit out of each other yeah. and then and, and it did it, you know I mean I, you know I, we could do a separate podcast on this but I but the Thatcher Thatcher crushed the spirit of the working class man that whole f- Thatcher was going to be voted out and what happened in the off season it was just almost like somebody injected ecstasy into the whole argument, you know, because then everybody just disappeared. Everybody was politically driven in that late, mid to late 80s. Yeah. Acid House turned up and quelled a, a nation of angry young men. For good or for bad, you yeah. know, it, Thatcherism continued. But what happened is those people then went on to become some of the most forward-thinking, yeah. you know, set up huge design companies or music production companies or yeah. touring companies or agencies. You know, yeah. it was a really interesting time. Um, yeah. And it was so much fun, you know, jumping in cars at weekends and going up to Stoke or, you know, up to Newcastle. And I was going to say, I don't know if you know Jim, like Jim Mars. I know Big Jim well, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm really good mates with Jim. Yeah, and, like, yeah. and, and that sort of contrast of, like you say, of, you know, Jim's, you know, where he came from and then, you know, the, the, you know very politically motivated yes. get as well, but then just went into music. And just as you were saying that, I could just see yeah, Jim, no, like, I mean, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to you know, been up to Shindig many times. I think played a few times over the years and um, I was actually lived in Timeout for quite a while. Okay. My dad was a, a squaddy in Fenham Barracks. Okay. Long time ago. Um, yeah, Jim lives out of Timeout now. Yeah, it's lovely Timeout. I do like, I do like Timeout. I went to school in Timeout. I went to the Priory. Um, so yeah, and that's it, you know, you kind of, that football thing, you know, did, connect so many people you know as daft it sounds because you would go to London when it was when Acid House was at its peak and you were going to the match but you were going clubbing as well and and lads yeah. you, you know you were in contact with those lads they might have been was like again this podcast makes me think about stuff I've never framed in this way before and I know people still follow football I yeah. know people still travel but the one thing we did as kids like we lived in Carlisle but we travelled to Liverpool, we yeah. went to Goat Nation, we travelled up to Glasgow, Goat Clubs, we went up to Newcastle, we went to London for ministry or whatever. Yeah. But you were always, you were used to travelling to the match. So it was, you were already used to getting on a bus, I was on yeah. a train on a Saturday, you'd go to the football, then you'd find what club you were going to go yeah. to. Then you, and then, I don't think, I mean, I talk to promoters that I know, that level of travelling to a club doesn't happen as much in the UK as it used no, to. because it's... There's no way people are moving that level. Okay, big events. People from Carlisle would go to the Warehouse, Warehouse Project. Project. Yes. But me and Tyson used to get the last train out of Carlisle, out yeah. of Houston, get off at, you know, sorry, out, out of Carlisle, into Houston, go to the ministry, and then the stay train. there all night, first train home. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, there's no way many people are doing well, that I think, these days. I, I think now, because content and access you can switch on and watch a boiler room session of your favorite dj in brazil yeah, yeah. you know we had to we had to travel because there, no there was no know, else, yeah. there was no way of hearing those that music yeah. i remember bunking out of school living in north wales get, going up to manchester i used to buy most of my records in manchester Eastern block, it, no pre-eastern blocks were spinning and underground okay so pre-acid house I was a massive smiths fan okay and in 88 or 89 i used to also write 
casually letters to a magazine called Smith's Indeed, which was a fanzine. Okay. And they ran a big weekender Smith's, you know, conference. And it was in, it was out of university season. So they hired the uh, Oxford Road Student Union building. You all turned up these sleep bags. You kind of kipped wherever. They had rooms with like people selling records, screening old films. And then we all, I, you know, we marched down to the Hacienda on a Saturday night and, you know, I had a quiff. And it's the first time I kind of heard any, I mean, I was into hip hop at the time and I was into indie music. And then I was hearing early Chicago house and stuff like that. And that's when I discovered house music. And then I went the following weekend when I went back up to Manchester to do some record buying, I went into, it would have been the underground, I'm pretty sure. And at that time they would have been selling me hip hop. And I, I walked in and they're like, and they kind of knew me. You know, that young kid from North Wales, you know, probably would come and spend 20 or 30 quid. And he slid a pile over and I was like, no, no, I was at a place called the Hacienda. I want some Hacienda music. And that's all I remember. And it was like, oh, okay. And then, you know, and it wasn't a massive amount, but there was some bits and bobs, you know. And that was, yeah, because we had no other way of finding out. You had to go to these places. So this happened, this happened, I don't date, but this happened pre those dig gigs we're talking about. You got into the Yeah, yeah, this was kind of, so this would have been... So this would have been sort of late 80s, yeah, late 80s, yeah, for sure. Um, so I was kind of, you know, I'd started to be introduced to different kind of music. Yeah. And then obviously, you know, there were... Because that weekend in Manchester, that would have been, that would have been Hacienda type music. You wouldn't have been playing Smiths, you know, you wouldn't have been playing indie at those Oh, no, I mean, I was, pl- I mean, no, I was playing everything, you know, I've right. always been a, eclectic. you know, e- eclectic. Yeah. I would have played anything and everything, um, you know, a bit of hip hop. A uh, bit of indie, you know, Man- Manchester music, whatever. I would, I would always collected and bought, yeah. um, but I'd never really joined the dots. I'd never really understood, you know, that whole ethos of a New York discotheque, as it were. And then the yeah. closest, I guess, would have been, you know, when the Man- when the Hacienda popped up. Yeah. yeah, I think that's lost a little bit these days. Like, I mean, I would, you know, I was the new episode of uh, DJ Man's got Dennis Sultry in it. I think yes. Now I've seen them a few times. I'm not, I'm by no means a champion of him, but I do enjoy his ability to, in a world which is very cool, play different music. I do think it's lost a little bit now. Like, I mean, I remember that kind of, that Van Helden New York House Odyssey mix that yeah. he did. And I do think that's just sometimes a bit lost and it's frowned upon to move out of your narrow genre in those big, you know, clubs and those big DJs. I do think it's a shame that there's not a little bit more well, room I think, for movement, like, or people are afraid to move out yeah, of. I think it's become lane. measured, hasn't it? Everything is measured from your fan base, you know, your mixes. I mean, you hear these stories of DJs of, you know, they're playing up. It's a big lineup, so there's no warm ups. It's just big hitter, big yeah, hitter. Yeah. And you know, D, a DJ is on, and, and another DJ is late because whatever, and and that DJ is like panicking because he knows he's coming to the end of his set. Yeah, it's like. You know, that to me is just, I find really odd because the fun, one of the most fun things about DJing is going through your box, you've looked over, you know, and you're down to the last 40 seconds, that panic's on, and then you pull something that you didn't even remember you had in there, and it's like, bang, poof. I love that. It's it's, it's an analogy I've I've explained to a lot of people over the years ago. Basically, DJing is a countdown to silence. Yeah, like yeah. you're basically looking at that needle running out yeah. or that timer going down yeah. and it's an it's it's you it's it's you you're the buffer between however many people are in front of you and nothing yeah, yeah. <laughs> and making them you know we could talk about this is a whole other podcast but you know controlling the emotion the yeah. tension release all that kind of stuff but it's just a countdown to silence yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And, and sometimes sure. your brain sometimes your brain whether it be alcohol or whatever else induced creates some beautiful little yeah. moments off the cuff 
yeah. um, that you were like, I didn't really know that mix would work. I forgot I had that record. Yeah. And it's like, it's, sometimes you get those lovely bits of, I mean, sometimes or, you get some horrible moments. But. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But this is what you're losing. You're losing those. It, it has become more of a, you know, measured and quantified and scientific approach, which yeah. to me is lost because everything sounds linear and flat. And, and I think, you know, <clears throat> certain drugs, you know, like the ketamine thing have yeah. helped facilitate that. <clears throat> I mean, I, I mean, I, 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 somebody sent me that, that meme of the angry man waving his fist at the clouds. And sometimes that is me because I go to clubs, you know, and I wander around rooms and I go, that's a fucking same record. Yeah. It certainly feels like it. I mean, where, you know, where's the, I've had, uh, that, I've had that in a five hour set. You're like, is this, yeah, is this it's still a, the same record? <laughs> you know, I mean, people slate EDM, right? Yeah, and it's not for me, but it's an entry point. But at least there's ups and downs, yeah. you know. And yes, pretty much formula ups and downs, but, but still, yeah. Um, so if we if we come back in a little bit again, I love going off on these tangents. Yeah. But so so you, you kind of so you you're doing all these different things in North, the North Wales scene. I guess at this point you've decided you want to be. I mean, are you are you aware that you can earn a living? Is it still? Are you just trying to escape? Normality and reality is it just are you just caught up in the flow? Like, I was have you forced got a plan. Like, no, not at all. I was sign writing um, and going. So all my mates are in Manchester, so I'd be like, you know, jumping on the train on a Friday, going raving at the weekend, yeah. coming back into the office, you know, late Sunday night. Some parents crawling to it Monday, not pulling my weight, um, and basically my boss sacked me. But what they sacked me for was totally irrelevant, and my parents behind my back took them to court or threatened to, okay. and they did an out-of-court settlement. Yeah. And it kind of... So, in the meantime, I'm out of work. Um, and it's like, my dad's like, well, what are you going to do? He said, we need to go... You need to go up to the job office and sign on for start. So I went up there and I literally walked in and there was people sat there with, like, cans of beer and fucking packed lunches. And, and I came out and I said to my dad, I can't do this. He said, what do you mean? He said, I can't sit there. That, to me, is, like, game over. And he, said, and he was quite proud of that fact. So I went and enrolled on a... A basic course in uni in the local college um, and while all this was happening what sort of course was it you remember? I think it was just a basic HND business or something okay. like that or criminology or something but after I'd been sacked and I'd kind of so this would have been this is why I get all confused with my dates so this would have been in the 90s by now so I had been DJing and earning money and I was still sign writing yeah and then Darren Hughes, and I'd, I'd connected with Darren Hughes because I'd been doing, and Cream was up and running, so I had been doing some bits and bobs, but not a lot for them. Yeah. And um, he just rang me and was like, I heard you've been sacked, some things are meant to be, type attitude. And I was still living at home. And then I then somebody from the office a couple of weeks later said, oh, we're going to send you to Ibiza. You're going to be, become one of our residents. So I was like, Amazing. so yeah, so that kind of, you know... I, I knew I could earn some money at DJing and kind of things had started to, this is, yeah, I say my dates are all. But it's interesting because my dad was in the army. Oh, my dad was, yeah, yeah. Yeah, as you mentioned before. Yeah. And I mean, my dad, my mum and dad have both been, you know, very supportive of everything I've done. But there is something about DJing, as you are aware, and obviously everyone else is, that isn't quite as linear as being in the army. Yeah. Um, so, so sometimes people, and, I, and I'm not putting my name on, sometimes people of that persuasion struggle to understand. Yes. The other persuasion, um, in that, and that bit of ability to duck and dive and survive and yeah. you know, earn money and stuff. But um, but yeah, Darren Hughes of, of Cream fame. So, so your first, so you got a break essentially. So basically, yeah, I, I always say I went from fourth division to Premier League. So, you know, and what was that first 
season in Ibiza, for like where were you playing? Where so you I was living? playing Amnesia. Okay. And I was living in um, in a in a villa up, kind of like a cream villa. The cream villa, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was um, it was I was the oldest one in there, sharing a room with Scott Barton, and Amazing. and there was three of us in a room, and it was kind of everything you imagine it to be. It was like load, you know, we were all looking after each other. We were given a budget to buy food. Which, you know, would be just f- freezers full of bread and cold meats and, and, you know, we weren't looking after ourselves. But it was, <laughs> it was great, you know, because, you know, I suddenly was in that world and that's where I met your likes of Sneak and Sanchez and Cox. They, when they were coming through, were they staying at this villa when they were No, playing? no, no. Okay. No, no. So this was the workers' villa. So it was okay. the PR team. Because okay. back then, you know, you turned up and, and the club didn't give you anything. You know, you were promoting your own night, so you had to bring your whole promo team yeah. and... Your own suitcase to take the cash home. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and it was kind of, it was, you know, we just made it up as we went along. You know, we had to put a party on and the, you know, yeah, it was, it was amazing. And from that I met, you know, you like So were you doing, sorry, just because it really interests me. Were you doing the main room? Were you doing warm-ups? Were you doing I was the doing, terrace? Were I was doing, doing everything? Were you? I was most of the time on the terrace doing long sets. So okay. like eight hour sets on the amazing. terrace. This was just before the roof got put on. And for the 96, I didn't do the full season. I did six weeks. And the season wasn't that long then, anyway. It was like three months as opposed to four or five now. Yeah. Um, were you also like out grafting it, doing ticket sales? Or no, no. no. So I mean, just, we just needed to do BCM on a Wednesday for cream and Thursday for cream in Amnesia. And then I'd go, go to Mallorca. Yeah, I'd go over to Mallorca on a Wednesday and do that. So yeah. it was really, it was, it was great. And then my days would be spent, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd walk to camp, you know, I'd get a lift down to Mambo, take my records, and I'd jump on with. Pete or whoever Steve who was there and just play and back then Mambo wasn't the super yeah. space now I mean there was little areas I could go off and I'd go and have a snooze and and Happy would just be like you know let make sure Phil's okay just you know don't let anybody disturb you know they, they really looked after us you know I mean Happy's a very shrewd businessman and you know he he realized that the more we hung out down there it would bring people down you know and but he it, you know it was our home from home and yeah, it was amazing, and obviously from that season. Yes, I was going to say, like, I know it's a long time ago. That first season, you know, you've, you've lived a dream. You know what I mean? Yeah. You feel like a superstar. When you arrive back in North Wales, what are you? Can you remember? Like, what is your? Have you got a plan? What you're faced with? Are you, do you know that you're going to get regular work from Cream? Yeah. In the club and on tours. Are you in the family? now? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I'd already been doing some bits with them. Um, so you're quite close with James, or was it more Scott, or was it more? It was more. Uh, more Darren? It's, it's a weird one because. It, Darren was the one who gave me that break. Um, And I I always had a kind of quite an abrasive relationship with James. Not a, it was like a love-hate. I don't know how it, you know, he just saw me as this cocky, arrogant Welsh kid (laughs) who perhaps didn't know when to shut his mouth. And um, I mean, we've got older now. We've both sat on panels and, you know, and we flew back, both of us flew back from um, ADE and we'd been on on panels and we were just chatting about the old days and, you know, and it was our kind of schooling, you know, we, you know, we've all done our own. I mean, he's obviously done amazing stuff and, you know, I, I would say I'm not doing too bad. Um, but I think I was probably more aligned to, to Darren um, back back in the day because he was the one who literally gave me that break and was the one that I would give the tapes to and yeah. who would meet me at the door. You know, there was a time when a load of us piled in a car to drive, the car broke down. We ended up getting a cab from North Wales. We were, we were pretty spangled by the time we got there. I literally remember falling out of the cab <laughs> to his feet and he just like the club hadn't even opened and he's like ushered us in sat us in the back room got us a load of brandy and cokes tell us your story what, what's gone on you know and he, you know he's made sure we were looked after because you know we were all young lads 
earning shit money and spending it all in his club, you know. Did, did that summer, so obviously you kind of do the creamy stuff, did that summer and did that cream connection then get you into lots more gigs in the oh, UK yes. over the winter and yeah. sort of set you up for a good like well, rolling I, period then? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I was always quite hungry for that and I just... As soon as I got started playing at the club, I was contacting every other club around the country. You know, um, so you you were really uh, you were really pushing that yourself. Yes, like you were. You like you said, you were posting things off and ringing people. Yeah, up and- for a few for a few years before Cream set up an agency, I was kind of managing myself, and I organised. You know, I found like you know promoters in South Africa, and I would come to South Africa for a month in January. But I would only get a handful of gigs and I love to travel. So I would go and spend a month in a country, do two or three gigs to cover my cost and then travel. Yeah. I saw that recently you were in New York and it's that yeah. little club with that behind the deli. Yeah, behind the deli thing. thing. And yeah. I've always done that. And I kind of, I look at the likes of Steve Lawler and stuff who, to him it was like, go and do the gig, get out there, go and do the next gig. Whereas I was always, yeah. the gig was always... Part of the culture. Culture, yeah. yeah. And, you know, again, to, to my detriment, maybe if I'd have been a bit more... You know, just do the gig and get out there. But but that's not, you know... I what think- I love about it, like what, what, you need to do much more than me, but what I love about it is, you know, you go to like India or Goa or go to America or Spain or anywhere, and if you travelled there, you know, with your pals or whoever, you would find things. And obviously there's TripAdvisor or whatever. What I've always loved and felt totally like blessed about that DJ thing is, you arrive somewhere, I was in Bahrain recently, the promoter wants to take you to yes. his favourite little restaurant bar yeah, or yeah. his favourite little restaurant. Yep. And, you know, when I was in like um, in Japan in Osaka and the guy wanted to take me to this like weird little backstreet place that sold this eel sushi from his hometown and yes. like, it was vile. But it, but it was like, and that's what I, I'm totally on your wave. I feel blessed that you get there and people want to show you yeah. things, take your places. Totally. Um, that's what was the enjoyment of it. And, um, and it still is, you know, I'm still discovering. I went to Detroit for the first time this year. Wow. Um, that was such an amazing experience. I'm, I'm actually looking to go back this year. Played some incredible parties, met some amazing people. Um, and and it, I still love that side of it. That's w- what keeps me, you know, it is that cultural side. It is the, yeah. the discovery. But it's the, a connection. You, yes. you said it before, really, and I, I agree with you. I mean, nearly all my long-term friendships, nearly, I would say almost exclusively, come through, through music, even if we're not both DJs or but you know it's because I met them in a club, club through a yeah, promoter yeah. or via this DJ or whatever yeah. so I would say yeah, almost all of my adult yeah. relationships since, since leaving university and probably in university were based around, yeah, yeah, around yeah. clubbing and music yeah. um, so then is, I mean again not going to dig in a, you know like you said we could do a specific podcast about cream we could do a specific podcast about this but just as a sort of overview and you know don't worry if you, <clears throat> again I'm not specific dates what, what was then the next big turning point or what, you know, so you kind of, you're rolling, you're doing these cream things, you mentioned the agency, but it, it, just looking back in your own memory, what was the next big thing? Did, um, did you decide to do something different that took you down a path? Did something happen which, like, you know, did you, did you change the music that you were playing? Were you required to change? Or? So, I mean, when I was always into your more soulful US house and when yeah. I got the first phone call off Darren to play Cream, pre him sending me. So I'd already started to play Cream at this point. Yeah. Then then they sent me to to Thingy. He called me to say, um, I want you to warm up for Andy Weatherall yeah. in the annex. Yeah. And I was always the big main room, yeah. death mix. Yeah. So I was like, what am I going to do? You know, this is what I do. But then I had to go and go through all my vinyl and look at the B-sides. And it was like, you know... Little, looking at the bonus beats and the darker mixes and, and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and suddenly, I mean, again, 
that was a real baptism of fire. So that that really made me understand that, you know, because I was an eclectic DJ before and then I got into house and became kind of quite Soulful, blinkered, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And then that suddenly real. reiterated the fact that you can play anything. Yeah. Um, and then the week after I did Laurent Garnier. Um, Again in the Annex? And the Annex, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. I think that week I did that and then straight from that I had to rush on and do because the headline DJ hadn't turned up so I had to play a main set as well. Amazing. So these were the days when... They were the days. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the next couple of big things, so, you know, I, I was doing Cream, I was getting gigs off the back of that. Um, I think they set up an agency, they took me on. Um, so I was on there with like Roger Sanchez. And yeah. So when Roger was touring Europe through Cream, I would be his warm-up. Amazing. Which was amazing because I learned so much. So we might be on the road like for four or five days and on a Wednesday night we might be doing a basement for 200 people somewhere. And the next night we might be doing a 2,000 capacity warehouse. Yeah. And what I learned from watching Roger was he would play the same music, but in the deeper, smaller clubs, he would play pitch down, full length tracks, letting the music breathe. Yeah. When he got to the when we got to the bigger places, he was yeah. playing the energy elements of the tracks, yeah. fast mixing, yeah, yeah, and that was re- that was really good. And then you know, obviously, Ibiza came round again, and I went. And then season of '97, Ministry was being run by a really good friend of mine, um, and she was like, "Look, we're going for a rebrand. We're going to start a new night. We want you as a resident." Was that ruling or was that sorry? Was that ruling or was that post ruling? It was, was pre ruling, I oh, think. Right. Yeah. Moving, it was. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah moving, and they were like, I went down for a series of meetings with the team, and they were like, you know, we've now got to run this by uh, James Plumbo, but you know, yeah. as far as we're concerned, you're our new resident. You know, I was like, great, because I was, I was a resident at Cream at the time as well. And then I went down for the final meeting. And they were like, James says you can't be a resident because you're a resident at Cream. You can play every week here, but you'll never, you be, never on be on the beer class as a resident. Yeah. So I did that. So I was playing kind of every Friday down there for a while. And then obviously I, I was, you know, I was still hustling myself. The politics of clubbing going back. That's crazy. That, that yeah, yeah. You know I mean? It is crazy. And I was hustling and just doing my own thing and, you know, and... You know, I was very good friends with Ben Turner because yeah. um, Ben would come and hang out with us all summer and, and he was really good, you know, in just, you know, if I needed anything or a contact or even, I mean, I had a website many years ago and it, the opening statement was a statement he wrote, which, I, to be honest, I wish I'd kept because seeing how his career's yeah. gone, <laughs> yeah, I could keep reminding him. But, um, yeah, there's it, never, you know, I, I don't think, I, I remember... Being in New York, first time I went to New York and hanging out with Junior Sanchez and, and he took me to Armand Van Helden's place. We were hanging out in his big loft apartment and I was yeah. DJing on his setup and yeah. it was like Benji Candelero was there and it was just like, lady, you know, all these ladies of the night hanging out and it was just like, this is fucking ace. I'm like, I'm, I'm from Wales, what's going on? <laughs> and it was just fun and, and me and me and Armand were flying back from New York together to go to the same gig he, it was the opening of this moving thing and he was doing the main room and yeah. I was, and we both kind of met and we were going to, the, we were at the airport and he went first class and I went obviously cabin class. But he said something to me, he goes, your career will go up and down. It's never, it, it's never yeah. linear really. Yeah. You know, some DJs have managed to get it so it's a little less highs and lows, but it's still ups and downs. Yeah. And I, yeah, and that's always stuck with me and I think, it's a great bit of, it's not advice, I guess, but it's a great perspective yeah. to be aware of. And I think now, you know, I'm 49 last week. 
I, you know, my career has changed, but I'm still doing what I love, you know, and progressing in a way I want. Um, and yeah, and, and yes, I'm not going to be a big main room DJ because that's, I've moved away from that. You know, my music is a lot more softer, more eclectic, chill out for one. So where did it like, again, I don't need dates, but where did, when did that begin to happen? You know, like I'm not talking about peaks and troughs here, but just when did that when did it begin to move away okay. from you know that big room warm up or that big room headline to where we're at? So now? I was well. Whenever I was travelling, I was still digging and yeah. I was buying eclectic music. And I was living in Chester. This would have been ninety six, ninety seven. So I'd come back from Ibiza. I'd bought into Global Grooves Record Shop, so I had a record store, yeah. which was run was set up by two lads from the northeast uh, who'd gone to Liverpool in uh, in Man- Liverpool. And I was, you know, I'd been helping that as a Saturday boy. And then eventually they were like, look, do you want to buy in? You know, so I was doing that and collecting this music. And the odd gig at weekend, I wasn't away. Or if I was back in Chester, I lived with two other, I lived in an amazing flat, big flat just outside Chester. And it was, you know, we had a set of decks in the front room. All of us had decks in our own room. We were all big record collectors. And the, if you, who had, the rule on a Sunday was whoever's at first did a few things, put the coffee on, put the first album of the day on and, and, Rolled a spliff. I couldn't roll spliffs because I was rubbish. So you never got it first. So I never, I never got it first. <laughs> but we would do that. And what would happen is through the day, friends would drop rounds, we'd bring food, we'd, we'd eat, we'd listen to music. And, and it wasn't dance music. It was like the stuff I'd found. Yeah. Or my mate. And a, another really shrewd friend of mine was like, I'm opening a pub and I want to do something on a Sunday. Would you be up for doing it? I was like, yeah. So, I, so basically I had two artists... On, I had a label called Northern at this point with Russian K Class, and it was a, it was kind of a like a almost a subliminal esque label. It okay. was kind of that New York influence yeah. house music. And there was two lads called they were residents at Feel in Preston, Jamie and Chris, uh, the, uh, the the Mentalists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they did one of the first releases Feel on my label. Preston. Yeah, yeah. So they were both audio engineers and used to fit sound systems. So I got them down to Chester, and when my mate was doing his pub up. I said, I want a DJ sat down. So we, we drew up this thing. We got this this little booth there he made. And they put all the connections in. So he literally could plug the decks into the wall and it would go through the system. And I yeah. could, and me and Jim Barron from Crazy P, just Jim and I grew up together. Um, I got Jim over and we started doing these Sunday things. And it was didn't have a name. It was just a Sunday afternoon. Yeah. Me and him play music. Yeah. And, um, and that's where I, I mean, I'd always collected this music, but I now had somewhere I could play it. And that just at that time, I think Aficionado in Manchester had started. So they were a Sunday social playing, you know, and and, and that's where that kind of thing happened, you know. And though I was still going out the weekend and playing house and big clubs, I was coming back to do these little... And was this more like soul, funk, rare groove? Yeah, jazz, everything. Just more down-tempo stuff. Yeah, early air. I mean, things like that, that kind of, you know soul music jazz stuff you'd listen to and and it and sometimes towards the end people would get up and want a little dance and we, we could lift it like that but it was just really nice and there was an old boy who used to come and and this is how the new northern soul name came became because he was like i love these parties it's like it's like the old northern soul crowd it's almost like a new northern soul crowd and yeah. he explained that you know how people connected through the music and yeah and i went there you go new northern soul and, and and i you know in hindsight perhaps not the best name to call my label because it has no connections to the actual music i put out but it is what it is now and that was it i was doing these little things and then you know i would get booked when i'd go to south africa and do these gigs i would 
say, look, I want to do a club, but I also want to do, do a listening party or this is the thing I'm doing. And, yeah. you know, and, and some people were open, uh, uh, you know, never seen that before, but were up for it. And, and that was always my kind of, you know, my yin to my yang, I guess. And as I've got older, you know, and, and so I was doing that party and then I was doing podcasts. I was, I just got into the podcasting really early. And, and, and then people started sending me music, this more eclectic, you know, down-tempo, chill-out. Stuff that they'd made or stuff they'd found? Both. Okay. Mixture of everything, really. Okay. And I was like, wow. You know, and obviously I'd had strong connections to Ibiza and Jose. I remember coming to see, I remember stumbling in to see Jose Padilla in <laughs> 92, Café de Mar, and a man called Adam playing live. And, and Sally and Steve, man called Adam, became great friends. In fact, that year I hung out with them. They kind of took me under the wing and were taking me clubbing. And, um, and I realised that, you know, there's this whole, you know, there is a certain music works in certain places. And like some of that music I was hearing being played by Jose, if you'd have put that in any other environment, it wouldn't work. But when that sun was setting, it yeah. was just like, and I was like, wow. And that's when I realized that, you know, the, yes, club music is emotional, but also in this environment, the music is just as powerful. Yeah. Um, if not more. Really. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah. when you're soundtracking that sunset, you know, and I still to this day, I might, it's the one thing that I'm just, so privileged to do and I've done it in some amazing spots around the world but I, I just love it you know and, and I just n- never understand when people are playing like minimal deep fucking linear deep house or whatever to that you know and I'm like you know anyway that's just me and that's another probably another ranty podcast but so yeah so I was I was yeah it was it was never a contrived thing but I think as I've got older and I think I've probably made a rod for my own back because I I kind of Stop going out clubbing as much, picking and choosing the gigs I wanted to go to, not buying as much because I, I found that I'd listen to that record and play it a handful of times, but I'd never listen to it again. Yeah. Whereas albums I've got and I'm buying now jazz albums that are 50, 60 years old and still sound incredible today and yeah. as emotive. Um, well, that's really it's become, you know, the, the dance music, the house music, whatever, it's become very dispensable, like ridiculously dispensable. Yes. Whereas, you know, that music you're talking about isn't dispensable in the same way yeah. because there wasn't so much of it produced. Yeah. Um, you know, there's only, relatively speaking, a limited amount of those jazz yeah. albums. Whereas, you know, it, you couldn't even keep up. I mean, I sometimes just feel, I mean, I listen to a lot of music, as long as I do, I'm sure you do, but a lot of current dance music. Yeah. You even feel like you could listen, you could sit and listen all day, every day, and still, and still not, not stand top, of and it. still not get anywhere near the amount no. of music that's being released. Yeah. Um, it's just crazy. I mean, the reason I, you know, I set up my podcasts was a I wanted to get music out, but it was also it helped me. You know, I didn't really it, it, kind of sidetracking a bit. I found out that last year that I had ADHD, you know, and I've obviously had that all my life and it's, you know, and it's certainly not uh, hindered me, but it got to a point in my life where it was actually affecting some of the stuff I wanted to do. So I went on this self-discovery path to to find out what it was. And But what I realised was by doing mixtapes, CDs, the podcast, it's how I file and acknowledge the music because especially now where there's more, I can actually... Go back through because I'm very analytical with keeping playlists, yeah, and yeah. and that allows me to kind of <coughs> connect to where I was, at, particularly in that year or yeah. that month for music. So, you know, I love technology for that. I'm lucky I've got a group of 
you know, people in my circle and beyond. So, you know, I, I listen to Giles Peterson regularly. I listen to the Bandcamp radio show. I have Mark Broadbent here who yeah. we swap music. You know, I have a guy in Ireland. I've got a mate in America, you know, and I've got this group. And we're lucky because we know what each other likes and we act as filters because yeah. there is just so much. And, and if you're just an avid listener, and this is why the likes of your Spotify playlists, I think, are, are absolutely brilliant because... I've got a few Spotify playlists I follow because that's another reference point I, you know, okay. I go to, you know, and, and people now I've built playlists and I get quite a few hundred followers and, and I'm like, well, they don't have time. They work full times with their family people. Or yeah. They don't do what I do. I mean, I yeah. sit and listen to music nonstop yeah. and I'm almost acting as a filter for them, but then equally I have my filters. But I think, I think that's a, a really interesting point. And I think it, it's an even wider point that you make because that is in a way, I think much more what DJs were like, yes. I think DJs yes. much more and it's interesting that you mentioned Sanchez like, I was a huge so I'm a huge Sanchez fan we would travel to go and see, to see Roger you know Shindig or Chris yeah. or whatever and I feel it was more that they were filters then yes. than they are now yeah. to, to, I sometimes feel like now a lot of them play what they think they should be playing yeah. whereas trying to whereas I think it was before it was exposing things and again, it's not it's not a bit too bitter old men talking about the good old days. I just think it has shifted a little bit. Now, I know there are DJs out doing that, and even in big rooms and in, in other places, but I do think it's changed a little bit. But it's a really interesting point I haven't thought of before in those terms, which is sometimes the people we're playing to or who are listening to our mixes or following our playlists, they have real jobs and families. They don't yeah. they only have forty minutes to listen to some yeah. music. So they want to know that that 40 minutes... Is well spent, yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. A I think it's a really, really good point, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, yeah, it's, you know, as you said there about certain DJs, I would go and see Roger. To me, technically, and at a point in time when he was playing the best music and producing the best music, those Secret Weapons yeah. albums and, you know, and then down the line, that's changed. I still think he is one of the most technical Technic DJs. Musically, is not really me because I've gone massively one direction, you know, yeah. Um but yeah, he was our, you know, if, if he was in town, you'd go because you're going to hear a load of stuff. I mean, I was fortunate that everybody talks about that Doc Martin DJ sneak four deck thing at Cream. Yeah. Nobody knows that the night before they did that in Rill. Okay. In my friend's <laughs> club, Gilly. Gilly was Roger's tour manager for many oh, years. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, well, okay. you're of course. So Gilly and yeah. I grew up together. Gilly yeah. moved from Liverpool to North Wales. Gilly was the guy who got me into scootering yeah, yeah. and used to build my scooters. Yeah, so I know through Jim, but you mentioned Yes, yeah, yeah. So there's that connection. So, um, but that, I remember that night, you know, in Liverpool, because I was in the booth with them and it was just amazing. But actually the night before in real was just as fucking wild, you know, because yeah. they'd never, you know, they kind of practised. They hadn't practised. They yeah. went to real, did it for the first time. And so it was raw. And, and then they were like, well, we know this works tomorrow. We're doing that cream. And, and it was like that you'd go and see those. But now, you know, I can hear those guys. I can switch online and, and hear them and see them. Yeah. You know, pretty much you could go online now and find a set whether it's live or uh, YouTube, yeah. but they're there, you know. And I think, and also, let's not remember, house music's 30, 30 odd years old now. Kids, kids' parents were into that, yeah. you know. So they're like, you know, to them, it's it's not that important anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 yeah, I mean, the generation thing's interesting. You yeah. know what I mean? There will be generations who've come through Ibiza now, and you, you probably could be on a third generation now. Oh, definitely. You know, you could definitely be on the grandchild yeah. of someone who was here back, you know, listening to you know, Danny or whatever, playing, you know, yeah. first playing in Ibiza. But I mean, I think I don't want to go too, 
you know, we've, we've talked retrospectively. Yes. I guess I was just going to sort of ask, firstly, what, what do you see as the future for you, you know, the next five or ten years? Well, yeah, let's just start there. What, I mean, what do you, I don't okay. know if, if you're planning it, I don't know if you if you, 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 you leave some up to accident sometime, but yeah, where do you sit here yeah, today thinking it's going to go? I'm kind of planning it. I mean, I've been working hard on the new Northern Soul label, and this year I've probably got 20 releases ready to go. Some albums, some comps, some singles, some vinyl, some digital. I've picked up some historic artists like Ryo Kawasaki, who's a amazing backstory. His dad was, he's Japanese, he's about 80 now. His father was a Japanese consulate. They lived in New York. He set up a house label in the 80s. He did all those clubs. Um, he invented some of the first guitar synthesizers, recorded loads of albums, ended up living in Estonia. Uh, he would he was over there visiting and 9-11 happened in New York, so he just never went back, basically. Uh-huh. He stayed in Estonia. Um, and he has recorded with most of the big jazz greats. And I was trying to put a Japanese compilation together a few years ago. And a couple of his tracks were on it. He was the only one who got back to me. He speaks great English. And he told me his story. And he owns all his music. So over the years I've been working with him, I've put a few projects out. He's now basically given me access to his entire catalogue. Wow. So I'm re-releasing a lot of that on vinyl. Um, I'm now working with a guy called Juan Bibiloni, who's another 70-year-old uh, Balearic guitarist. Again, I'm, I'm putting an album out on Record Store Day, which is a retrospective look at his career. I've had extensive sleeve notes written by Mark Rowlands from The Guardian. So I'm, I'm doing a lot more with the label, but a lot of historical stuff. I'm also giving some space to new and up-and-coming producers. So last year, I, I did three releases digitally, but I did a summer vinyl sampler at the start where I took a track from each. Yeah. I'm doing a similar thing this year. Um with a load of artists, but I've also picked up, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of developing that Balearic chilled s- sound, I guess, um, which fits in very much with what I'm playing and, yeah. and the path I want to go. Um, I also have a small publishing business. Um, and I'm also looking at another project called Chill the Folk Out, okay. um, which is going to be a kind of music-based site for... The only way I can describe it is a lot of my friends work in a very fast-paced life. They live hard, they party hard. They don't have time to switch off. And I, through my own experiences, realised you need to find that time. Yeah. You, you know, that whole well-being thing. Everybody, you know, kind of... It's a bit hippy-dippy shit. Well, I want to do something which is a website which has playlists on there, links to content. Cool. It, but done in a fat Phil Cooper way. So it's kind of kind of be a little bit brash. Like Chill the Folk Out originally was Chill the Fuck Out. Yeah. But, but but registering that as a domain and stuff got... And I just want it to be, if you've got half an hour on the bus, you can log onto a site, you can listen to 10 tracks I've put together. You can listen to a mix. You, there might, you know, I'm going to talk about but Ibiza in the winter, nice. you know, the, the other side of the island. So that's something I'm... Will there be some spoken word stuff on there as well? Maybe? I'm going to do, yeah, I'm going to do a podcast on there. Cool. Um, I'm going to do Spotify playlist, you know, but just little half an hour of selections of music, just bite-sized things with a view to that growing and becoming, a, a, you know, a much bigger portal of, you know, well-being without it being hippy-dippy shit. And, is it sort and of linked like, to mental health as well? Like yeah, kind of- this is kind yes. So, I mean, I left the UK five years ago to live in Bali because things went right. And it, as I say, it was mainly to do with ADHD. I'd, I'd, I'd been misdiagnosed. 
I was told it wasn't, it was depression, but you know, I, I wasn't ready to believe that. I was involved in a very successful business, but it was getting to the point where it was like, I can't function in this and it's a good point for me to exit. So I exited and moved to Bali, which was great. And it gave me a chance to reflect and, you know, I met my partner there. And But this idea came about then. I was like, I just want a 24 hour streaming music service of really good chilled radio shows. And, and, and over years, this has developed and, and changed to this point. Um, How far away from launching? Oh, quite a long way. I'm, I'm, okay. just, I'm going through the branding. <laughs> okay. So basically, I parked it for a long time. And, and in December, in January, me and my girlfriend, we took a few days from here and went up to uh, Agriturismo Spa for a couple of nights. And we were having a massage. And as I was being massaged, this chill the folk out morphed into uh, this chill the fuck out. Yeah. Turned into chill. Chill and I just had this conscious flow of stuff. And when I came out, I wrote it all down and... And now I'm, I'm speaking to and Leo Elstob, Leo okay. Zero. So yeah. Leo's a graphic designer. So we've had a couple of calls. He's going to help me with the branding. And Maybe we should go for more massages, man. I know. <laughs> it definitely helps. But it's just, you know, it's something that it's not the first time it's popped up and it keeps popping up. So I'm like, that's what I'm going to be focusing on. Um, I say the label's doing incredibly well. I want to try and do more with that and find the right sync part, you know, people who can maybe exploit that music that I've signed, because I signed publishing as well. Yeah. But yeah. Because TV's so huge now. So many TV programs being yeah. made. So many people need music. Yeah. Uh, again, we could do a podcast about sync and about... Exactly. Else, yeah. yeah, it's a super interesting part of, of, of the And I just want to push that. Um, DJing-wise? You know, DJing-wise, so I'm doing La Torre here. I hope to do some... did a few things at Pikes last year. Um, I hope to have a meeting with them guys. They're off travelling at the moment. The, you know, Mark and Sarah... Well, Sarah, who does all the... But booking. potentially, like you said before, exploiting... Exploiting my sonic I know. Word, but using using all of the, the label stuff that you do and everything else to travel and to see new places whilst DJing, I think... I, is, yeah, I mean, I'm going to... So I go to India uh, next month. Um, that's for a wedding, but I've got some gigs sorted. And then three weeks after I come back, I'm going to Bali for two and a half weeks. I've got, you know, various gigs there. Um, I, I'm I'm looking to go back to... You know Mark Roberts out there? I know Mark, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Going back to um, Detroit. I want to go... F- I'm based... Because I did a week in New York, and then I went up to Detroit. I got the Greyhound bus overnight and did Detroit for a week. But actually, I'm just going to go straight to Detroit yeah. and base myself there and do a few gigs, lots of digging, Um some gigs in Chicago and just kind of hang out in that area because I've got some amazing friends there and I really, really like Detroit. It's like, yeah, the, everybody's just amazing and it was, yeah, it was just great. It was like this huge city but the, it's, it's almost like a small town approach. A small scene. Yeah, a very small scene. Yeah. But, you know, I've got an artist. Oh, like a type of scene. Yes. Like I mean, sorry. And Blair French, who's who used to be a hip-hop producer back in the day and he's worked with, you know, and a rapper himself, worked with Eminem and, he got into ambient music and he produced an album for me last year, which did really well. And so I was, you know, hanging out with him and I want to do more projects with him. And I've met another guy called Peter Croc, who has a Rocksteady Disco, really young guy, but very forward thinking. Um, and they're kind of pushing their, they don't call it Balearic, they call it kind of beach music. Okay. Um, but it is kind of their Balearic. It's their version. Of- and it's a bit more up-tempo. Um but they're starting to open up and, you know, you can hear, you know, so many influences. And they sorted me out a great gig. I played Marble's fourth birthday out there and it was like Moody Man, Rick Wilhite, myself, um, Blair French. And it was, you know, there was old old Detroit dancers there come up and go, man, you know, you 
you know, this is how it was back in the day in the 70s and 80s. And even Moody Man was dancing at one yeah. point. So, and that's where I was doing my more tempo, eclectic, African, Latin, you know, a uh, bit of house, bit of organic techno, just mixing up. But in that kind of, I guess, in a Balearic spirit where it does, there is, you don't just play one style, yeah. you play across the board. I think, I think it's interesting in the sense that you, you, you may not see it like this, or you may have, you know, blurred the lines of the previous three decades or so. And I hope you don't take offence of what I'm about to say, but it seems to me from someone who, who knows of you but doesn't know you, you've managed to basically, you know, never mind what Van Helden said, or maybe including what Van Helden said, you've managed to completely reinvent yourself, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, it may feel to you like a long, blurry, yeah, sure. a long, blurry line, but from the Phil Cooper who was in, you know, ministry on a Friday and cream on a Saturday and the annex in the main room and, you know, everything yeah. else... To now this like completely different, yeah, and, and you've now become, and I'm sure other people have done it, but you've now com- become an almost unrecognisable artist from the person who yeah. I might have known if I'd only ever known you would do what you were doing, yeah. you know, with those cream turning around with Roger and everything else, yeah. and then suddenly I, you know, the Torreina label, they are two quite different yeah, totally. artists, yeah, and I mean that with all respect, but they are two quite different. Although I'm sure that journey makes complete sense to yes. you. They are, you have, you know, have yeah. reinvented and, and elongated. And this is something I'm having to deal with now because Nicola, my partner, she's involved in branding and, you know, at a very senior level and stuff. And, and she said, look, you know, to you, your journey makes sense. And there are fans who would have been with you from the start and are still with you, but there are lots of people who stumble upon you at the yeah. tour who don't know that. So I'm also going through, I hate using the word because I'm not a brand, but looking at the Phil Cooper and coming up with something. Look at Giles Peterson Worldwide, for example. I almost, and it's been pointed out to me by several people, you are almost the Giles Peterson of the Balearic world, as it were, for want of a better word. You know, know, you've lived in Bali, you know, you've you've taken a a sound. I wasn't the first one to take that kind of eclectic sound there, but I've certainly helped establish it there. You know, we did some amazing events with people like Grace Jones and, and Harvey and Rub and Tug and... You know, working with another Geordie, young Dan. You know, Dan? Dan, oh, what's his surname? So Dan's originally from Newcastle. He had uh, LNCC in London. Do you remember that really high-end boutique clothes shop? No, so Dan's a Geordie. Okay. And he's the creative director for Taterhead now. So your man from 586 Records yeah, is over there at the moment. He's big mates with, yeah. with Dan. Okay. So Dan is... I Dan, if, you know his, if you mention his surname, I might know it, but it doesn't matter. But yeah, yeah. But we'll move on. So, but, so, so Dan... Married a girl from Jakarta and they settled there and he, at roughly the same time as I was there. And, and Dan's background has come from retail, but high-end clothing shops. He's got a really good eye for detail. And, and he got himself in, ingrained with a Potato Head crew and, and is now their creative director and has done some amazing stuff. So when we got there, you know, they needed a hand with the music. Um, Johnny Nash was helping out at that and Johnny needed an assistant. Johnny left, I took over. And we were kind of, you know, we called it Barley Eric. You know? Nice. And it was like sunsets. And, you know, and it was difficult because they were so used to really abrasive brash music. And then I came in with Dan and, and we had to fight all the, the not not just the punters, but the members of staff and, and stuck yeah, to our guns. And now it's become this, I mean, Harvey's just designed and built a nightclub with Dan, you know, so he's got a residency there. They've built this club amazing. and it's amazing. Um, and I just want to continue kind of, but I think your partner makes a really good point. And, you know, you don't always have to have been the first person to emerge as a brand within that area or that yeah, scene. Yeah, yeah. And I do think, yeah, I, mean, I would definitely be talking to you along those same lines. I just of, want to carry on doing what I'm doing. Yeah. And it's a passion. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've been fortunate that, you know, my passion 
it has been my life and, and it doesn't feel like a job there are, you know and I'm working with an amazing artist called Dan Wainwright who I met in an after party in Manchester years ago we've done some stuff but over the years I've realised that this guy is an actual mega talent as a producer and could be you know the next the guy who produced Radiohead or something like that so I'm working with him um, really closely you know and we speak every few days we're you know, he's a machine of music and I'm just trying to work this pathway out for him. And, and yeah, I just want to continue doing that. And, and again, it boils down to the shared experience thing. You know, I've had some amazing experiences and I want to help other people facilitate that. And I get really frustrated when I, I see somebody struggling, you know, I, I don't, can't work with lazy people. And I'm very lucky that there's not many people I've come across like that. But I sometimes see people who are so good at what they do, but they just don't know how to take their, pro- their, their music to the next level. Yeah. Whereas I can never make that music, but I know how to help them take that. Well, I was going to ask, have you, do you, I know you do a lot, publishing company, record label, DJ. Did you ever think about like a management company or a management? Uh, I, over the years, people have come to me and for whatever reason, it hasn't worked, you know, because first and foremost, you've got to be able to manage yourself before you can manage somebody else. And as I said, for a long time, I was kind of battling with with not understanding why I was, you know, going down certain pathways. And that's all kind of, you know, been addressed and is great. And and I think it has to be at the right time. And I think I'm at that right point in my career because I'm not chasing anything anymore. Yeah. I'm very happy with my lot. You know, I love, you know, that New Northern Soul has got a reputation in the in the small scene that I'm in. And, you know, I can I can work with the artists I want to work with. And from that, as I say, I, I, I've, I've met some amazing talent and I want to help them move forward. I think, I think un, it sounds like you've sort of unin, unintentionally, unofficially been managing some people anyway, like, you know, helping people, advising yeah, yeah, guys. I just believe in connecting, you know. I mean, yeah. the Crazy P's first album deal came about through, through a concert. You know, I introduced them to paper recordings, you know. And, and Jim now, in every interview he does, it, is very, very vocal in that point, you know. As we've got older, I think when you're younger, you just, you don't really, it, it, it wasn't, it was no big thing. And it isn't a big thing, but it becomes a big thing yeah, to those people. So you know, I mean, me, I say me and Jim, I was two years older than in school. We never really connect in school. I was that kind of naughty crossover kid between the geeks and the, 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 the fucking idiots. And Jim was very much, he was a classically trained musician, was kind of, and he self-admitted, you know, he would call himself a self-admitted SWAT, you know. Yeah. He, did, he went to uni, I kind of, been dabbling in house music and was doing stuff and we kind of connected and I went to his first you know his first DJ gig he started sending me music he was producing I was reviewing for DJ Mag uh, so I was at all these connections and I remember sending stuff to Elliot Eastwick and you know so it's things like that and, I, and it's only when you get older and sit down and kind of reflect back and you realise that you know I'm a facilitator of this and I'm, I'm good at that and you know when I went back I went back to uni as a mature student I went to the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts yeah. and um, <coughs> I was at a cross point where I did crossroads in my life, didn't know what to do. And I was on a course, I was ready to give everything up and I was doing a small business, a course, a business course in North Wales with a view to becoming a small business advisor. Okay. And my best mate, Dave Brown, who is nothing to do with the music industry, but is my best mate, he said, what's your plans? And I told him and he said, why are you leaving the music industry? Why don't you side step sideways? Yeah. So the next conversation I had was with Rich McGuinness, who's a really old mate of mine. And I was like, yeah, 
Rich, you know, what do you reckon? You know, he goes, have you spoke to Pitchy, Dave Pitchalingi? And I knew Dave because Dave used to run Produce Records back in the day and he was involved with the farm and, and Dave was lecturing at Lipper. And I'd gone to Lipper the first year it opened and they knocked me back. They said, your background isn't sufficient enough. They wanted ballet dancers. Okay. And I was like, coming from a DJ background. Yeah. But, but I said, oh, I've been knocked back. He said, no, it's changed now. Give, give Dave a call. So I called Dave and Dave was like, what are you up to? And I told him. He said, look, come to Liverpool for the afternoon. And I went over and met him and I was kind of, he could see I was really kind of despondent. I didn't know which way to go. And, I, and he said, you could get on this course. You could jump in on the second year because you're already on a HND. Yeah. And with your experience, I'll have you lecture in the first years and the second years. And I was like, nah. He said, look, let's do an exercise. Here's the things that we're going to teach you in college. And he wrote these words down. He goes, right, what's that? that? <laughs> what's that? What, bang, by the time we finished that. And, and it was a real moral boost. And, and actually, going to, I did that course and it was, a, it was a real chance to kind of focus and understand where I, you know, what I wanted to do and, and give me some breathing space. But it, yeah, it was, it was good. And, and um, you know, from there, I kind of come out with not a new set of skills, but just a different understanding of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I just realised yeah. that, you know, I have got these skills. And, and now as I'm older and I'm, I'm more aware of myself, um, I, I'm, I'm ready to kind of try and, try and help other people. Um, and I've had a few people, and it has to be right for them. They say Dan Wainwright is... Yeah. he's so ready for this and you know he's just such an amazing talent so I'm quite happy working with him you know and I say do my other stuff I'm, one I've signed everything I need to do for this year and everything's ready so the great thing is now I've pretty much apart from sending a few emails out to the PR teams and stuff everything's done so I can now focus on you know doing what I do best which is listening to new music yep. getting that for, ready for next year and, and helping Dan you know so that's kind of what's happening now. A um, few tours thrown in. But I'd like to get... I mean, I love living here, right? The winters out here are phenomenal. I'm lucky I live in a great apartment. My girlfriend, unfortunately, has got a freelance gig. So we, we'll we go weeks, sometimes months, without seeing each other. But we, we're hopefully going to get to a point where, whether it's here... She can't work here. There's nothing... No client big enough. Uh, she's in Copenhagen at the moment. Okay. But it's a freelance gig, and it finishes in April. If, if she gets a full-time role offered... Then you know, I would imagine I'll probably move over there at some point. Yeah, not a bad city. It? No, it's a great city. <laughs> but you know, as far as everything else, no, you know, everything is good. You know, um, say so the music that I'm hopefully putting out this year on the label is great, and working with great mm-hmm. artists, and then still getting to do the gigs I want to do. And there's there's new gigs coming in. It's weird, you know, like. Because new people are still discovering you. Like, yeah, and also, <laughs> but I, also, I, I just made an effort last year. I was like, because I was looking at the gigs and, and the travel and the money, and, and I'm like, do you know what? As much as I'd love to do every gig that comes across, because I want to help those people, it's not good for my health. I had pulmonary embolisms from a in, massive, intense about bit of tour in a few years ago, you know, which were misdiagnosed in a hospital in Bali, and they wanted to cut my heart open, start putting stents in, and it was actually blood clots on the lung. I had to fly to Perth to get it. Okay. And I'm like, I'm, I'd say I'm getting to 50. Of course, I want to carry on going to and doing the right parties, but I can't. And also, I had a good, really good chat with George and Evelyn earlier in the summer. And one thing he said to me is, you know, know your worth. You know, me and George met at a rave in San Francisco in the early 90s. We were both on the same bill, you know. And, and I've seen how he, I mean, he's stuck with his thing and progressed and, you know, and he knows his worth. And that was something that I was like, right, okay. I'm not being greedy, but I'm going to ask for this much on a gig. Yeah, yeah. no problem. We'll pay you that. 
oh, okay. And the next gig comes in, yeah, no problem. And then suddenly I'm going out to gigs, ah, this is who I am. You know, this is where I'm playing. Oh yeah, we'd love to book you. You know, and it is, it's just knowing your worth yeah. and understanding the dynamics. You know, I'm, I'm one of those people where it's old school mentality where if somebody's putting the great party on and not making any money, I'll just play anyway. Yeah. And I will continue to do that. I just got to pick and choose those because I can't be away every can't weekend. Can't your body all the time. But, you know, and, it, and, and, and I love living here and I want to enjoy living here and focus on those other projects. So that's been, you know, something I've been aware of and... Uh, but there's some great, yeah, some really fun gigs coming in. I've got like a semi-residency, probably six gigs a year in Dublin. It's my nice. second one. Oh, let me know. I'll come over, man. And it's in a place called Yukio. It's a Korean restaurant, but downstairs they have a small basement. Oh, no, definitely let me know because I yeah. get some cheap flights from Newcastle. Yeah, yeah. and they're really good fun. Some good mates over there. Yeah, so that's been good. Um, I'm up, up to play for Gripper at uh, Barrow yeah. Underground Music, the Bums thing they call it. So it just sounds like a really, a really promising... You know, you look, you look, you've got a lot of really exciting, good things going on, and that, and you're in a good yeah, place. I just want that to, I just want that to continue, really, and and I think it's finding that balance, that work-life balance. I mean, living here is great. On Wednesday, there's a big crew of us. You know, everybody from Sasha's wife to uh, Danny Whittle used to run Pasha. We go walking. That's so you post. Yeah, we go for a walk on a Wednesday. I mean, they do it religiously. I've been rubbish. Merely because I haven't had transport, but that's getting fixed tomorrow. I'm going to pick up a motorbike. Cool. Um, and it's, you know, you go off in the morning. Usually we start at nine. We're done by about two. And it's a good walk. And uh, and it is. It's just about that balance. And nice. that's what I'm trying to get to is continue that. Um, because I believe if I'm balanced in that, then then helping other artists, it becomes a lot easier. And, and the managing the label and everything just... You know, is getting easier. Cool. As that well, I mean, I think as we've already said, we could have done a podcast about cream. We could have done a podcast about your publishing business. We could have done a podcast <coughs> exclusively about the label. But I think it's been a, a really nice, like, overview kind of thing. And it's yeah. been, you know, like you say, we could go on different routes, but it's been nice. I'm going to end the podcast the same way that I end every podcast. This okay. I it might be more difficult for you than some of the people I've done in the past who may have have had short careers thus far now you can choose anything you want it's just a bit of fun but how we always end it is I want you to curate your sort of uh, not dream gig but a gig you'd like to go to really so you can choose the venue um, whether it be you know, it can be a specific venue like Nation or it can just be an outdoor festival or you know yeah. whatever but I'm looking for like the venue it's taking place or, or the kind of you know thing it's taking place in and I'm looking for three acts um, not so much a warm-up, a middle and a headline. They're all kind of equal billing. You know, um, and you can put anyone on you like, really. And it's just a little bit of fun. I'm sure if I asked you a week ago or six months yes, ago, it would be different changes, from, from, yeah. from right here. It's just a bit of fun. Not like some people go, oh, I really need to think about it. It's just a bit of fun, something to end it with. But yeah, so sort of a dream gig. You can put yourself in the lineup if you want or as part of something like a back-to-back or whatever. It's just a bit of fun. But I'll, Well, I'll do it two ways. Okay. The first one is... A gig that's already happened. Okay. And because I was so in the trenches with it, I completely didn't sit with it. That was the Grace Jones Harvey gig. Okay. I would put myself on the bill, but that gig happened. I was managing it. We had all sorts of problems with people leaving the lid off the mixing desk and it flooding the night before the gig. To, so having to fly in two extra desks because there's only three in Indonesia, them getting seized, having 20, 20 engineers the strip the desk. There. It's, but do you know what happened? That, that, Grace's tour manager's a mank. His team were brilliant. They were like, if this doesn't get fixed, you know the gig's not happening. And I was like, yeah. And they didn't put any more pressure on me. 
we got that fixed to the point where Grace Jones came to the venue to do a sound check. She, he says, right, the longer she's on stage, the tougher this gig's going to be for me. She walked on stage left, she exited stage right. And he went, I said, what's happening? He goes, I have no idea. She's never done that in 20 years I worked with her. She had the, she just felt the awn, the magic. She didn't know about the mixing desk. Yeah. We got it fixed. Harvey rocked up, had worked with him before, you know, and I'm always very, you know, it's always his gig, but he was just like, he rocked up the Grace Jones t-shirt. It's all about her baby. I'm happy, whatever. So... I was then invited. It was Potato Head. Okay. Darling. Yeah. I was then invited up to meet Grace after and I bottled it. I just said to the tour manager, Andy, I was like, Andy, I can't do it. I'm an emotional wreck. I'm so, he goes, and he laughed. He goes, it's not the first and the last. You've got my details. If we're ever in town, give us some notice and we'll hook it up. Um, so if I could do anything, it would be that gig without all that pressure and me DJing as well. Cool. I'd love to do that. In the ultimate reality world, um, any party outside under the sun on the Adriatic or the Med. Okay. Um, Daytime, early evening. I guess across through sunset into nighttime. Yeah. You know, so Jose Padilla at his peak, you know, Phil Myson, those kind of people. Okay. Um, You know, with the essence of Alfredo when it was amnesia back in that day, you know, Um, and probably one of the Italians, you know, from Cosmos, what's his name, Baldelli. I mean, I've worked with Baldelli, I brought him over to, to Bali as well. You know, but as you say, you could ask me that next week and it'd be a different okay. lineup. You know, for me, it's outside, it's kind of, um, you know, that point of the day where the sun is setting because yeah. things go from things change. Things change, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's always like, you know, people ask you your favorite album or your favorite yeah, album. that changes on a day. It's, it's just a bit, of yeah, fun. no, it's no, it's fun, yeah, no, totally agree. But that at this moment would probably be, yeah, something I'd like to see, you know. But then equally to, you know, I've just read Norman Jay's book to understand, you know, the parties he was putting back on, the warehouse parties back in the day and all that. I'd love to have been and seen a part of that, you know. I didn't get any of that, unfortunately. Not so much later on and going down to see him at Notting Hill. and But, you know, when they were doing their big warehouse parties and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, being in New York for, you know, I was lucky enough to have done Body and Soul and... So I've been to a lot of those pivotal clubs and and, and experienced them in their, you know in their their natural essence. I think it sums you up. Though. I think the, the mix of the Grace Jones thing and that day night thing and the drag. I think that sums up kind of. Yeah. Really. If people want to find you, find mixes, find more out about the label, where can they go? Like what? so, yeah, Fat Phil Cooper, P H A T for the fat on Resident Advisor. Oh, okay, Facebook. That's, oh, right, two questions. Okay. But I've, oh, I've got this all wrong. Right, so that's normally the end, right? Okay. I mean, we'll come back to these links. Okay. But there's two questions okay. that I meant to ask, because I'm not a proper journalist. I haven't got any notes. No worries. First of all, and this is what it may, may remind you, where did Fatfield Cooper come from? And the, and the PH, like, where did... So it was um, when I was in Chester running my record shop, DJing, um, a, mate, a mate of mine, uh, Simon Locke, who's a bit of a designer, I asked him to design me a business card. And it basically, somebody had taken this really amazing shot of me drinking a bottle of beer kind of from this angle up. It's really kind of cool. And it, he had that image and he just designed, and he just put fat Phil Cooper on because my music was fat and funky. Cool. And that's kind of where it stuck. And I guess from the hip hop days, and that, but that's where that came from. Um, and it just kind of worked, you know, and at those, in back in those days, everybody kind of had those, Little monikers. Little monikers, yeah. yeah. And it's probably, you know, it's probably, you know, to describe my music now, it certainly isn't fat. But 
that's who I am. And no, it, yeah. it works. Okay, and yeah. so this is my second question that I meant to ask you. We were at La Torre last night. Um, me and Mike just yes. went to see and uh, Andy Baxter was, was playing. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know if you can quite see on this on this picture, but uh, I will turn around and show you. The sun was setting and it was sort of setting in between. In between, yeah. In between like, there, right? Yeah. Now, Mike, and this could all just be Mike being incorrect. Mike says in summer, the sun's to the right of this. sun's right in front of you. Second item. So I said to him last night, is there not a point when the sun goes down over that island in between the summer and the winter? And he said he could never remember it. Like, so does the sun, in, if the sun's over here in the summer, yeah, yeah. in the winter, yeah. is there a period in like yeah. October where it just it goes? Moves, that, yeah, yeah, it just moves across, yeah. yeah okay. So it, it comes peak of the summer where, where the DJ's looking out, the sun bangs straight, straight in front of you. Yes, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Mike's just an idiot. That's fine, we'll suck the So thank you for those two. So if you want to find out more about the publishing, the label, the publishing, find your mixes, where can they find So Fat Phil Cooper, so I'm on Mixcloud, Soundcloud. I run a new Northern Soul podcast. So it's Fatfield Cooper Presents and New Northern Soul Sessions. That goes out every Monday on Ibiza Global. That's my weekly show between two and three Spanish time. But then I do it for Music for Dreams. I do it on Melodic, melodic Extraction in Liverpool and I have my own Mixcloud account. Cool. So if people just Google New Northern Soul, N-U, yeah. Northern, or Fatfield Cooper, they'll, they'll connect. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Oh, yeah, it's cool. all there. And there's always new content up. And, um, and the label, yeah, is, it, you know, it's on. Beatport, Bandcamp, iTunes, everything. Great. Right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Phil. Thanks very much. It, man. Nice one. Felix Leiter's In The House. The podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are.